Happy Friday, Story Fam. Uh, listen, I hope you're doing well. I hope you've had a great week so far. I have. I've spent a lot of time over at our new Timber Grove building showing people around. It's so exciting. But I have to talk to you today a little bit about politics because with the election just a few days away, I've been finding myself in need of a heart check, a gut check. I've just had to, to make sure I keep my heart in check lately because politics for me is a bit of a blind spot. And if I'm not careful, I can turn it into an idol. Um, and that's not because I'm particularly partisan. I'm actually not a Republican or a Democrat. It's because I'm competitive and I like to argue and I like to be right and prove other people wrong. And I just get into that like a sport almost. And it's not good for me. And I know that I'm not alone here. We have elevated politics to a status and place that it does not belong, especially in the lives of believers. Politics, though, has become such a moneymaker for America's 24-hour news cycle that it is almost impossible for us to avoid being consumed by all the hype and hysteria. It's during times like these, during weeks like these, that it's super important for us to remember Jesus' words in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. So, honest question here. Do you think when you analyze your heart, you see purity right now? Or do you see fear? Or do you see hate for the other side? Or do you see anxiety about the future of your country? Is there purity there? You know, when our hearts are polluted by stress or bitterness or anxiety about the future, we give our spiritual enemy an opportunity to divert our eyes away from God from all that really matters, toward lesser things. And that is usually how we get ourselves in trouble. In 1960, a young man named Bernard was living the American dream, really. He was from a close-knit, middle-class family. He married his high school sweetheart. He was a hard worker by all accounts. And after working for a year as a lifeguard at the local pool and saving every penny that he could, he invested all that he had, $5,000, into his new business, a financial planning office. And he grew his business by giving honest advice and personal attention to every client. And soon enough, he had a strong, growing company on his hands. For 40 years, he was well-respected in the financial industry, and he served on the boards of several charities. He had a reputation for being a family man. He hired his two sons to work with him at the family business. All of his dreams were coming true, apparently. But somewhere along the way, something had gone horribly wrong. In December 2008, this self-made, hard-working family man confessed to his sons that a branch of his company was an elaborate Ponzi scheme, and their boys had no choice but to turn their father in to the authorities. The next day, Bernie Madoff, told investigators that he had stolen around $50 billion, give or take a billion, from his clients over the years. Their investigation, however, revealed that the actual figure was closer to $65 billion. Madoff was convicted in 2009 and sentenced to 150 years in prison. The list of his victims includes household names like Steven Spielberg, Kevin Bacon, Jaja Gabor, and Sandy Koufax. Madoff stole $9 million from school teachers in South Korea and $15 million from a foundation supporting Holocaust survivors and their families. Several charities were forced to close their doors in 2009 because Madoff took all they had. Maybe the most tragic victims were Madoff's own sons. One of them hanged himself on the two-year anniversary of his dad's death. I'm sorry, of his dad's uh, arrest. 
and the other one died after a cancer relapse, which he had blamed on the stress and the shame that his father's crimes had caused him. In the wake of Madoff's conviction, everybody wanted to know how this could have happened. Was this Madoff's plan all along? Back when he raised $5,000 of his own money and saved it and invested it into his new company, was this always the plan? Or at some point along the way, was there like a board meeting in which an evil scheme was devised and hatched and agreed upon by all? Where did it all begin? Madoff told us how it began in, in interviews that he gave subsequent to his arrest and conviction. It began, apparently, like every other tragic tailspin of sin begins. One day, business was slow. Bernie wasn't meeting his quotas that month. His arch rivals across town and across the street were crushing him. Bernie hadn't taken a day off in months. When he looked in the mirror, he saw a fat old loser. And so that day, at just the right time, Bernie's most important client called, wanting information about her investments. Bernie couldn't bring himself to tell her the truth. He was afraid that he would lose her business. And so instead, he told her a little white lie, according to Bernie, the first lie he ever told on the job. And he said it just to avoid a moment of pain. The spreadsheet said her fund was down 3%, but Bernie told her it was up 3%. That made her happy. And the feeling Bernie got from making her happy felt like that first cup of coffee in the morning, and he wanted more. And so that first little lie led to a second, and a third, and a fourth. And with every little lie, lying got easier, and the stakes got higher. Until one day, that young man who worked his tail off to save $5,000 to start a business looked in the mirror and saw the world's most notorious thief, a destroyer of lives. And it all began with one little lie. The same is true for every sinner and every toxic pattern of sin. It's true for all of us. Nobody ever took their first drink and thought, I really hope I become a raging alcoholic one day. That's not how it works. No one ever got a little too flirty with a coworker and thought, I can see this becoming an affair that will break my wife's heart, change my kids' lives forever, and bring me to financial ruin. That's not how it works. No one ever takes a few days off of praying and reading the Bible or a few months off from church and thinks to themselves, I'm really looking forward to seeing how Satan will use this opportunity that I'm giving him. We don't think like that in the moment. But 1 Peter 5.8 says, The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And Ephesians 4.27 says, Give no opportunity to the devil. Your enemy will use anything against you. All he needs is one opportunity, one toxic thought, one moment of weakness, one open door, and he's in. We tend to think that evil works more overtly. We like to think of evil people as though they were evil all along. We like to make villains out of people as though they were sinister their whole lives, like in the movies, because that helps us forget that we were all sinners, that we're all capable of criminal activity. We're all essentially Bernie Madoff. And we Christians talk a lot about how God has a plan for your life, and that's true, but it's important that we understand that Satan also has a plan for you if you let him. He will... He will hatch his plan for your life. God's purpose is to reshape you into his image. We talk about that all the time. But the enemy's plan is to warp you, to contort you, to twist you until one day you look in the mirror and you no longer recognize yourself. And that's what we refer to as hell going on forever. N.T. Wright describes this process this way, and this is a long quote, forgive me, but I love this quote. 
Here it is. He says, when human beings worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. And those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. And those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power, or might I add politics, define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. My suggestion is that it is possible for human beings so to continue down this road, so to refuse all whisperings of good news, all glimmers of true light, all promptings to turn and go the other way, all signposts to the love of God, that after death they become at last by their own effective choice, beings that once were human but now are not, creatures that have ceased to bear the divine image at all. This is where one little lie, one little turn can take us. This is why it's important to guard our hearts and to trust in the grace of Jesus Christ. This election season, I believe in some ways our, our very souls are on the line. Our future is up for grabs. Not because of who might win or lose, by the way, but because we're at risk of taking our eyes off of God. Whoever you vote for, and whoever wins on Tuesday, Jesus is still our King. And the name of Jesus is better than any name you'll see on a ballot next Tuesday. So take heart. Don't give in to fear. Don't give in to anger. Don't give in to hate. And remember Jesus' promise. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for we will see God. God. That's it for today, everybody. I hope to see you this weekend in worship. I love you so much. Bye-bye.